Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about some things that happen in your life. There are many wonderful experiences in life that bring joy. I remember when I turned 16 and I got my driver's license and I was so joyful and so proud. I drove up to, it was Wednesday, it was a Wednesday. I remember it was a Wednesday. I drove up to church to go to youth group in my car and I got out and so joyful that I had my driver's license finally. I remember tossing my cap and gown when I graduated from high school with all of my friends. It was a day of joy. I remember when I stood at the altar on June 18, 1994 and said vows before my beloved bride, Dawn, and we got married. That was a day of joy. I remember the birth of my two boys, Aiden and Zachary. Those were moments of joy. For some of you, you've had experiences of joy in your life. Maybe it was a promotion at work that you've been waiting for for a long time. For others, maybe it was that dream vacation that you took that you've always wanted to go on and it turned out perfectly, the weather was perfect, you had a great time. Others, it could be a celebration of a milestone anniversary. These are wonderful experiences that bring joy to our hearts. Now, what is joy? What's joy? Now, over the years, I've tried to encapsulate this in, in Sean Cole's best definition. This is not inspired. This is not inerrant. This is just my best attempt to give you a definition of what I think the Bible teaches about joy. So here's joy. Joy is a deep-seated sense of contentment and satisfaction in Christ alone that does not change but de- uh, does not depend upon circumstances, but rests in the unchanging and sovereign grace of God. Joy is deep-seated. It's a sense of contentment. It goes deep into your soul. It does not depend upon circumstances. It does not depend upon what's going on in your life. It rests in the unchanging power and sovereignty of our great God. Now, why do I bring up joy this morning? Because last week's sermon may have had some of you fearful or anxious. Last week was a hard-hitting message. When we heard the words of Jesus, when he pronounced those woes on those Jewish towns that had exposure to Jesus. Remember what I said last week? Greater exposure to Christ brings greater judgment if you reject Christ. And so Jesus gave that hard-hitting message to those Jewish towns that rejected him. There was the privilege of having exposure to the gospel, but there's the peril of rejecting that gospel. But today I have a message of hope, a message of joy for those of us who have trusted Christ for salvation. Where do we find joy as opposed to fear. There's many reasons to be joyful. So let's pick up where we left off last week in Luke chapter 10. If you remember, Jesus sent out the 72 
two by two to go into the villages to preach the message of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near to you. They're going out as lambs among wolves. And so let's read what happens. So let's pick up in verse 17. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the 72 come back from their short-term mission trip and they're pumped. They're excited. They're elated. They're joyful. Maybe perhaps this has happened to you before. You come back from a mission trip and you've seen God do amazing things and, and, and you've seen the work of God and you've been instrumental in being used by God and, and you come back all excited. And so if you have not figured it out, the key word in this passage is joy or rejoice. It shows up four times. So it's really the, the whole passage is about joy. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see as we look at this passage of Scripture, three reasons to be joyful. Three reasons to rejoice. Here's the first. Be joyful in Christ's victory over Satan. Be joyful in Christ's victory over Satan. We see this in verses 17 through 19. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Notice it's not their name, it's not their power, it's in the name of Jesus. So as they went into these Jewish villages and they proclaimed the message of the gospel and, and, and Luke does not give us the nature of the spiritual warfare that was happening. He doesn't talk about in detail. All we know is just that the demons were subject to these followers of Christ. The demons had to obey. And so here's the issue. Satan and his demons do not like their territory of darkness to be infringed upon with the good news of the gospel. So when you go into enemy territory with the gospel, there's going to be some spiritual warfare. There's going to be some resistance. There's going to be some opposition. Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 18. It's a very interesting statement, and there's a lot of scholarly debate as to what Jesus really means here. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what does this mean? Is this in reference to back before creation when Satan fell as an angel? Is this in reference to the future when Jesus is going to cast him into the lake of fire? Is this in reference to the preaching of the gospel? I think it can be all three. 
I think what Jesus is doing here is he's using symbolic language to show that he alone has victory over Satan. And how does this come? This comes through the cross, it comes through the resurrection, and it comes through the preaching of the gospel to those in darkness. So the Bible does speak about Satan being cast down, falling to the, to the depths. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star. Now, if you have a King James Version, this is where the word Lucifer shows up in the Latin Vulgate. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you're brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. This is a reference to the fall of Satan when he wanted to be like God. And God cast him down to the earth. He fell like lightning. Revelation 12, 9 through 10. Again, I don't have time to get into all the, symboli, the symbolism here, but the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Notice the repetition. Satan's been thrown down. He's been thrown down. Now, when all that happened, we can go into a different discussion, but the Bible does speak about Satan being thrown down to the earth. But the Bible also speaks about how Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection also disarmed or defeated Satan. In John chapter 12, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, 31 through 32, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, talking about Satan, be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up on the cross from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed Satan on the cross. 1 John 3.8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So there was a point in time where Satan fell from heaven, came to earth. Jesus disarmed or destroyed the work of Satan on the cross, and yet there's a future that we know where Satan will eventually end up. The Bible speaks about the final day of judgment. In Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, When Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, it could refer to all of these. But in the immediate context, what are the disciples doing? They're going out proclaiming the gospel. And as they're proclaiming the gospel, as they're going out and sharing about Jesus, there's a defeating of Satan going on. 
There's a victory going on every time the enemy is being infringed upon in the domain of darkness. Matthew Henry has good insight on this. He says it this, Satan falls from heaven when he falls from the throne in men's hearts. Christ foresaw that the preaching of the gospel, which would fly like lightning throughout the world, would pull down Satan's kingdom wherever it went. What was Paul called to do? In Acts 26, when Paul's on trial, he talks about what Jesus had called him to do when he met him on the road to Damascus. Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of the the gospel of Christ. And so when we go out and we preach the gospel, when we share the gospel, every time we do that, Satan's enemy territory is being attacked. And there's going to be some spiritual warfare. But Jesus is saying, ultimately, I have the victory. I saw Satan fall like lightning. And then he goes on to say something very interesting in verse 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, what is this talking about? Is this talking about snake handling? What is this talking about? Snakes and scorpions? Is this literally snakes and scorpions? Or is Jesus, again, using symbolic language? I personally think he just used kind of symbolic language about Satan falling like lightning. I think he's using symbolic language here of serpents and scorpions. Now, let me tell you what I think symbolically it means. I think the serpent is Satan and the scorpion is the demons. Now, why do I think that it's talking about Satan as the serpent? Well, obviously, what happened in the Garden of Eden? Satan slithered in as a serpent to deceive Eve. And God pronounces a curse upon the serpent. Remember Genesis 3.15? It's the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible where a Messiah would come and crush the head of Satan. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he, the, the serpent, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a prophecy about Jesus. We read it earlier, I won't read it again, but Revelation 12, 9 talks about Satan being that ancient serpent that was thrown down. And then Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here's the point. A serpent or a scorpion may hiss at you, They may be aggressive at you. They may even attack you, but they cannot hurt you. They cannot ultimately have victory over you. Jesus has ultimate authority over all demonic forces. Now, don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean that you're not going to be immune to this, the attacks of the devil. It doesn't mean that you won't experience spiritual warfare. It doesn't mean that you, that you won't ever have to engage in any type of spiritual battle. The devil's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But what it does mean is that Jesus gives us the power to stand against the onslaughts of the enemy. You stand in his power. You stand in his grace. You have authority over the devil and demons. In Ephesians 6, 10-11, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. How do you stand against the devil? You put on the armor of God. 
He's going to attack. His, his darts are going to come at you. But you put on the armor of God. You stand on that day. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. It's the same Greek word as stand that Paul uses in Ephesians 6. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him, the devil. Stand against the devil. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So don't be afraid of Satan and his demons. Be joyful that Jesus has authority over demonic forces and stand in the victory of what Jesus has won. Put on the full armor of God and be joyful that Jesus has disarmed Satan. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus has ultimate authority. Be joyful in that. That's the first reason to be joyful. That Jesus has authority, has power, has victory over Satan. But there's another reason to be joyful. And Jesus tells us the second, be joyful that your eternal salvation is secure in heaven. Be joyful that your eternal salvation is secure in heaven. Now there's great joy in doing evangelism. There's great joy in seeing people come to faith in Christ. There's great joy in doing mission trips. There's, there's, these disciples came back with joy. I mean, they're, they're exuberant. They're elated. They're on top of the world. They've seen some amazing things. But notice what Jesus says in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. So it's kind of a conundrum here. Jesus says, don't get so excited about that. It's, it's great that Jesus, that, that Jesus has authority over demonic forces. But, but here's another reason to be joyful. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. Let's think about Judas. Judas cast out demons in Jesus' name. Was Judas' name written in heaven? What did Jesus say to those in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many, this is the scary thing, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As great as casting demons out is, Jesus says there's a greater joy that your name is written in heaven. You see, our security and our salvation is not in what we've done for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. The grammar here is very interesting. When you look at the Greek grammar, rejoice that your names are written. It's a, it's a perfect passive verb. I'm not going to bore you with all the Greek, but it's important. It's passive. It's in the passive voice because you don't write your name in heaven. Your name is written. God's the one that writes your name in heaven. And it's in the perfect tense, which means that your name was written, and it will continue to be written, and it will always be written. In other words, God did not write your name with a pencil and then erase it because somehow you sinned too much and somehow you lost your name being written in heaven. The Greek grammar is very important as to the permanency of your name. This is talking about our eternal security. Now, the Bible speaks of the book of life. All the way back in the Old Testament, actually, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, talks about the book of life. This book, this where, where our names are written. Revelation 3, 5. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is where? In heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You should have great joy that your salvation is secure in heaven. Your name is written in heaven. Jesus holds you in his sovereign grip. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I've told you this time and time again. You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in the double grip. You're in the grip of the Son and you're in the grip of the Father. And no one can take you out of Jesus' hand or the Father's hand. You're secure in that grip. And not only that, not only are you in the hand of Jesus, not only is your name written in the book of life, but you're also engraved on the palm of his hands. Now you say, now where is that in the Bible? I'm glad you asked, Pastor Sean. I got a verse for you. Isaiah 49, 16. This is God speaking to Israel. Behold, I've engraved you in the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now, what does it mean that God's engraved us in the palm of his hands? Now, to engrave was like you would engrave into a stone, kind of a permanent engraving. The hands represent intimacy and ownership. This is a very poetic and symbolic way of saying God loves us so much that he's, he's like carved us into his hands permanently, never to let us go. We're etched, we're engraved in the palm of his hands permanently. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. He's going to be with us. You are his permanently. You're in his hand. Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're engraved in the palm of his hands. He will never let you go. Now, we have to ask a question. When, when was your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Romans I mean, sorry, Revelation 13, 8 says this. All who dwell upon the earth will worship it. It's talking about the beast here. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is and is not and is to come. Okay, let me just give you a little bit of code word in the book of Revelation. As you study the book of Revelation, John uses a term over and over again, those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers. That's code word for a non-Christian. A person who's made earth this home. A person whose citizenship is the earth. But there are those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When did that happen? Before the foundation of the world. Which leads to our third point. Okay, So number one, be joyful that Christ has victory over Satan in your life. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Number two, be joyful that your names are written in heaven. 
that you're eternally secure, that he's got you in the palm of his hands. Okay, so let's go back in time, if we can, to eternity past and ask the question, okay, how, how did all this thing, how did all this start? Well, here's the third reason to be joyful. Be joyful that the Father chose you for salvation before the foundation of the world. Now, notice verse 21. In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now, think about that. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. It's a different Greek word used for Jesus than of the disciples, and it's a strong word. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And just a side note, you kind of see some Trinitarian interplay here. Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, and he's thanking the Father. So we have to ask the question, what's Jesus rejoicing and thanking the Father for? Now, this is where it gets a little confusing. This can be a little dicey. This can be a little confusing, but I want to accurately handle the text. Now, in the immediate context, who's Jesus talking to? He's, he's talking about these disciples, and what does he say there? What does he thank his father for in verse 21? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, gracious will. Okay. The father is making a choice to hide the gospel from the wise and the learning, but he's making a choice to reveal it to little children. This is, remember a few weeks ago when Peter made his confession about Jesus as the Christ? Matthew 16, 17. He, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. The Father chose to reveal that to Peter. The Father has chosen to reveal the identity of Christ in the gospel to little children. Now why does Jesus call the disciples little children? Well, in that culture, little children had no rights. They were totally dependent. They were weak. They were hopeless. They were helpless. That's, that's kind of the picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You don't trust in your own ability. You don't trust in your righteousness. You're not prideful. You have that childlike faith. You have that dependence. You, you come to Christ with, without any type of pretense. You come to him in your, in your childlike faith. So Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to these children, quote-unquote, the disciples, but he's hidden himself from the wise and the learned. Now, who were the wise and the learned? Well, in that culture, it would have been the Pharisees. It would have been the scribes. It would have been the Jewish leaders. It would have been the Greek philosophers of that age. In that culture, it would be those who would be schooled. Jesus chooses unschooled fishermen and tax collectors and a bunch of misfits to reveal the secrets of the kingdom, but hides it from the ones that the culture would look at as educated, the educated Greek philosophers that prided themselves on oratory, the educated scribes and Pharisees that went to the rabbinical schools. Again, Matthew Henry has some good insight into this. He says this, If rabbis and philosophers had been made apostles the success of the gospel would have been ascribed to their learning and wit and the force of their reasoning and eloquence. Think about it. Jesus always does things opposite the way you think. If you were to get together and say, who would be the best group of people to send the message out? You'd say, let's get the top, let's get the top athletes, the top movie stars, the top business moguls, the top scientists. Let's get the top people and they'll get the message out. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. Actually, I'm going to hide it from those people 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to these kind of weird fishermen and tax collectors and this rough, rough, ragtag group of guys that really don't know what's going on. I'm going to choose to show it to them. I'm going to reveal it to them. Now, that's in the immediate context. But Jesus gives further clarification in verse 22. We need to understand what verse 22 says. And again, this may be hard for some of you not to, 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 to swallow, but I'm going to read what the scripture said. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In other words, God has a sovereign prerogative in who He's going to choose to show this salvation to. So again, this is talking about God's plan of salvation, saving them apart from any merit. It's talking about God choosing us before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4-5. through 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God chose us. God predestined us. When did it happen? Before the foundation of the world. When were our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. Be joyful. Now, you don't have to work out all the details about the, the doctrine of election. I mean, if you want to come talk to me afterwards, we can have some deep discussions. But here's the point. God planned your salvation from before the foundation of the world. And how, how that lands with you, it should be a source of joy that God is in control from first to last of your life. But I want to show you how Matthew frames this. How does Matthew frame the same exact conversation? In Matthew eleven twenty five through 27 it's verbatim of what he says in Luke. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verbatim, Luke and Matthew. But I like what Matthew's gospel says next. Very next verse. Okay, so these verses talk about God's sovereign plan of salvation. God is choosing who he's going to reveal things to. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God chooses. Okay, the next, very next verse. Okay? What does Jesus say in the very next verse? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a paradox. In the midst of God's absolute sovereignty, the very next words out of Jesus are, I invite everyone to come. If you want to come to Jesus, come. And here's my invitation for you today. If you want to come to Jesus, come to Jesus. If you want your sins forgiven, come to Jesus. If you want to have a relationship with Christ, the invitation is open. Come to him to release the burden of sin in your life. If you want to come to Jesus, come to Jesus. And if you come to Jesus, that's proof that you were chosen. If you come. So come to Jesus and find rest for 
your soul. Now, Jesus ends the passage with a blessing in verses 23 and 24. Turns to his disciples privately, probably the 12, and says, listen, guys, there's a great blessing in your life. You guys got to see with your own eyes and hear with your own ears and touch with your own hands the Messiah in the flesh. And the Old Testament saints, the prophets, the kings, they didn't have that privilege. You got a blessing. Think about Abraham for a moment. Abraham got a glimpse of it when he took Isaac up on Mount Moriah and almost sacrificed him and the Lord provided a, a, a ram in the thicket. It's kind of a type and shadow. Think about David who penned all those prophetic messianic songs. Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They've, they've pierced my feet. Think about Isaiah when he's writing Isaiah 53 and giving graphic detail about the cross some 700 years before Jesus is born. Those Old Testament saints only had a glimpse of the future promise of Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you guys have a blessing. You've seen me with your eyes. They longed to see it. They longed to hear it. They only saw it in types and shadows and prophecies and from a distance. You're seeing it right now with your own eyes. Well, how about us? Now, obviously, we don't have the privilege of seeing Jesus in the flesh because he's died and gone back to heaven and he's in heaven today. But we've seen him on the pages of Scripture and in the preaching of the gospel, we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection. We have every reason to be joyful. Why? Why can you walk out of this place with a confidence and a joy? Well, I can give you three great reasons. Number one, Jesus has victory over Satan. Number two, your names are written in heaven. And number three, God plans your salvation in eternity past. And he loves you and he will keep you and he will never let you go. And you are in the palm of his hands. If that does not bring confidence and joy and assurance to you, I don't know what else will. But these truths should never produce arrogance or pride or thinking I'm all that. When you think about God's sovereign grace in your life, it should melt your heart in humility. And you should leave this place saying, why me? Why am I saved? I love this quote from Spurgeon. I've given it to you many times over the years. Charles Spurgeon said this, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me after I was born. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. Do you have this confidence, this assurance, this deep-seated sense of joy in your heart because of these truths? Satan may attack you, and Satan may tempt you. He may hiss at you, but he cannot hurt you. They may take away your job, they may take away your house, they may take away all your possessions, but the one thing they can't take away is your salvation. Because your name's written in heaven. And he's got you in the palm of his hands. And you're engraved there forever. And God plans your eternity God planned your future and eternity past. God chose you. God started something. God, God planned for you to be saved. And what God started, do you think that what God started in eternity past, he's going to give up on in the future? 
or anywhere in the process, he's going to leave it up to you. I've been thinking about this all week. If my salvation was left up to me at any point, I would never be saved. I would never stay saved. And I will never get to heaven. God has to do it from start to finish. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We have every reason to be joyful. We have every reason to have confidence, every reason to have assurance, every reason to find that rest, that joy in Christ alone to have that deep-seated sense of joy and contentment that doesn't depend upon circumstances, but rests in his unchanging love for you. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Jesus has authority over Satan. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your citizenship's in heaven, and God chose you before the foundations of the world, and he'll complete it on that final day. So, like Paul... Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it. You guys don't sound very joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it. Rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you today with joy in our hearts. Because of these truths, Jesus, I'm thankful that you have authority over Satan and you give us that power to to stand against the enemy, to put on the full armor of God, to go into enemy territory with the gospel. And, and Lord, we, the, Satan and his demons may hiss at us. They may attack us, but they can't hurt us. And Lord, there are so many people living in darkness today that need the light of the gospel. As we talked about last week, with over 3 billion people in our world that are in unreached areas that need the light of the gospel, help us to go into enemy territory and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom knowing that Satan will fall like lightning every time a sinner repents and believes. Jesus, thank you that our names are written in heaven, that we're engraved on the palm of your hand, that we're in the sovereign grip of your hand, that no one can pluck us or, or grab us out of your hand, that our names are written there, and, and they're not written there in pencil, but they're written there in permanence, permanent ink. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose, our Father, that you chose us before the foundation of the world to be saved. Thank you that what you started, you will complete. It's not up to us to keep ourselves saved, but it's ultimately up to you to sustain us to the very end. So thank you. Lord, give us joy. There's so many things in this world that we look at the news, we look at the internet, we look at Facebook, we look at Twitter, we look at all these things, and we can get very discouraged get very anxious, get very bitter, get very fearful. Lord, we as Christians should be the most joyful, confident, assured people on the planet because we know the end of the story and who wins. Lord, if we have any root of bitterness or anxiety or fear in our hearts, Lord, would you just take that out this morning? Give us your grace, give us your peace, give us your joy. Holy Spirit, we know joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit, so help us to rejoice in the Lord always, and again, we'll, we'll rejoice. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We can't produce the joy, only you can, Holy Spirit. So we rely upon you, we trust in you, and we walk according to your, your path. We walk in step with the Spirit. All to the glory of God. 
And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.